This morning from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, we have the ex-CTO of ParsHub and current founder and CEO of Layer CI joining us today. Please welcome Colin Chartier. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And how are things with you over there in Canada? Uh, they're good. I mean, things are optimistic here. Everyone's starting to get vaccinated. I have my vaccine appointment tomorrow, which is exciting. Colin, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, and let's uh, jump into the first question here, shall we? Sure. Uh, tell me about yourself and your background and how it led you to the path of founding uh, Layer CI. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been working on software and websites specifically for, for a long time, maybe about 10 years now. In, in university, my in, in first year, I made contract software for someone that was making like a bot that would trade based on algorithms. Um, and I had to write lots of tests and lots of, you know, stability code around that in first year. And uh, at the end of first year, I, I joined a startup that was growing very quickly. And they were making uh, kind of like one of the first generation of web platforms. So they were, they were doing web scraping as a service where you could take data from these now interactive websites and turn it into a spreadsheet. So uh, with that experience, I mean, that, that eventually ended up being CTO, which is another story going from intern to CTO. Um, but at that, at that company, reliability was really important because we would push changes you know, every Friday. And then after every change, we'd lose a big chunk of customers. And uh, so it was really high on my list of things that needed to be solved to let developers review changes in a kind of like more comprehensive way. And that's really what Layer CI helps with. So it's really a natural evolution of, of all of the work I've done up to this point. So with, you know, Layer CI, what have been kind of some of your biggest milestones so far? The, the biggest milestones are just getting customers, of course. In the, in the really early days, it was just uh, me writing software and my co-founder, Lynn, just emailing lots of people, connections and friends, trying to get them to use the software. Because uh, in the really early days, of course, we didn't have something that was super differentiated or uh, super valuable. Um, and since then, it's just been milestone after milestone. We, uh, we got into Y Combinator. We raised over a million dollars coming out of Y Combinator. Um, we've hired developers and you know, wonderful uh, support and uh, sales staff. And uh, I mean, we, we've really just built a team that builds a product that people actually want, which I think is the the gold standard for startups. And, uh, you know, recently, you know, I came across a very interesting LinkedIn post of yours focused on ephemeral environments. Can you first of all, kind of define what this concept is? I actually wrote somewhat in depth about it on our, uh, on our company blog, but the, I guess the, uh, the thing that layer CI solves that's related to ephemeral environments is say you say you're working on a, a website to sell pizza to people. So it's not just the, the part that users interact with that matters. It's kind of like the, uh, the iceberg below it. So when you click the buy pizza button, you know, that causes uh, state changes. It adds like rows to databases. It, uh, you know, sends orders all over the place. And if there's any problem there, the user will just see uh, error with your order. Couldn't, couldn't buy a pizza. And so as a, as a company selling pizzas, for example, it's really important that uh, the whole experience start to end works. So not just the front end and not just the back end, but like from clicking the buy pizza button, everything works. Um, and I guess traditional approaches to to development specifically for websites don't work super well because you might have tests that 
given an order comes in, it gets sent to the right restaurant. Or you might have a test that, you know, there's no dead links on the website. But it's really hard to write tests for the, the entire thing together because you need to be running all of the individual components. Um, and that's, I guess, exactly what ephemeral environments help with. Every time a developer, a software developer proposes a change, the ephemeral environments platform creates, you know, an entire version of everything. So it starts the server that dispatches orders, it starts the web server, it starts the database. And then uh, the person reviewing that proposed change can actually make sure that you can still buy pizza after the change. So if you, you know, change around the order flow or you add a new library or something, um, if you have ephemeral environments set up, the developer or product person reviewing a developer's work doesn't need to spin up everything themselves, which means it wouldn't get done. Uh, instead, they just click the link and actually try on their own. I think really what it gives you is like a very close to customer experience. Because ultimately, you know, when developers are developing software, they're developing it for your users. So if you're not testing the same workflows that your users do, like you're testing some proxy for what your users do, then you inevitably will break core workflows like logging in or paying or whatever, because it's hard to tell unless you actually try the workflow that something works. And if you force people to spend half an hour setting up an environment to test every change, then they're just not going to do it because there's too many changes in a day for someone to spend half an hour each time, especially in you know, modern settings that don't have QA teams or huge QA teams at least. So diving into this a little more uh, deeply, uh, you know, discussing uh, developers and, and, and kind of the overall workflow, right? How, how should they be hired and what is the uh, best way to um, make the most of them? I mean, I guess it's maybe a, a fallacy to think about developers as just a number. Like there's lots of very successful companies that just had one developer for a long time. Then um, there's also lots of companies that start with 10 developers in a more like maybe consultant style where a founders, maybe not technical, they hire a bunch of developers to do the individual portions and then get the, you know, get the team of 10 developers to do things. And, and there's definitely pros and cons to both. Um, Layer CI, perhaps ironically, started by just having one developer, which was me. Um, and I guess the benefits to that are you don't need all of the collaboration infrastructure. Like Layer CI didn't have like a, a ticket board to get feedback. I just directly talk to customers and then build up from there. Um, but if you're hiring developers, it's really useful to know like what success means for them. So if you, you know, want a better website or you want a better app, you, you might hire a developer that has experience building that sort of thing. And then your goal is if your website or app already has users, is to build new features for those users without breaking the existing workflows. And I guess that's where ephemeral environments and other kind of development automation tools are useful. You have two or more developers collaborating together, or you have a developer that needs to show their proposed changes to like a product owner. Um, if you don't set up all of that infrastructure before hiring, then your four developers will do the work of two, or your 10 developers will do the work of four. And, and in your opinion, Colin, um, when it comes to the mythical mammoth theory, how does it relate to hiring developers? So, I mean, this is a, an old famous programming book. It, I think it's called the, uh, the Bible of programming because everyone quotes it, but no one ever reads it. <laughs> 
Um, but I guess the the premise of the mythical man month is you're building a new product or you're, you know, you, you have a new project on your existing product. And you think, you know, it's going to take me 10 developer months. It's going to take like 10 months to make this new feature. And so the, the myth of the man month is if you had 10 developers, it would take one month to build it. Um, and obviously that doesn't work very well because just throwing more developers at a problem doesn't really make it any faster. And in fact, the, the book argues, or the author of the book argues that it makes things slower because there's you know, scrum meetings and communication overhead and uh, disagreements about design and it's not clear who's owning you know, which parts of the code base. So it, it definitely is a very, uh, it's like the balancing a needle, putting the right amount of developers on the right project. Because if you put too many, it'll slow it down. And if you put not enough, it'll slow it down. So it's, uh, the myth of the man month is you have to decide, like, given a team, how long will it take instead of thinking, how long will it take and go back from there to how many people we should allocate to it? You know, taking a step back when discussing both this, you know, ephemeral environments and this mythical mammoth theory, if you were to look at really the whole startup environment from a very macro perspective, how do these kind of theories kind of play effect in these companies long term? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's the two big classes of companies in startups these days are the ones that are like tech forward and the ones that are business forward. Uh, I mean, again, there's there's pros and cons to both. Like if you're if you're business forward and you you know have like uh, ex consultants as the founders, they they know how to like manage developers and they know how to get a product made. Um, but I think the world is shifting more towards product led growth and, you know, like uh, technical founders and technical innovations. So, you know, the, the ARC funds invest in like these new uh, technologies like uh, Tesla's self-driving cars and uh, deep genomics and uh, like internet companies like Cloudflare. So it, like the, the tech forward companies, I think are, are gonna keep taking more and more market share from the, the business forward ones. And by, by virtue of being tech forward companies, they're going to need lots of developer infrastructure. Um, and, and again, I guess, I guess I've, I've written a lot about this on our company blog, but um, it's, it's maybe as much of a mistake to get too much developer infrastructure as it is to not get enough. So if you have one developer and no product people, then it maybe doesn't make sense to set up ephemeral environments because you have no one to share them with. But if you have five developers, then it's almost a no brainer because the amount of time it takes to set up this infrastructure. Uh, it's kind of like a highway, I guess. Like if there's no cars that want to get between one city and another, there's no reason to build a highway. But once there's enough people that want to go between the cities, it makes sense to invest in you know, long-term infrastructure. And developer tools are, are no different than that. If, if a company is scaling and hiring lots of developers, then they should make sure to backfill those developers with the developer infrastructure they need to actually be able to do their work. And Colin, you seem to be very in tune, you know, with everything that's that's going on today. Um, and you're probably thinking about, you know, the future um, all the time. How do you kind of see some of these tools evolving uh, over the next few years? Things have gotten much more opinionated since maybe the early days. Like in, in 2005, there was many routes to make a website, or there was many routes to make a a company that used technology, like people used Perl, people used C, um, people used like Hacker News is written in this like really esoteric programming language. But I, I think over time things have really centralized and become really mature. 
So like Ruby on Rails really kind of started this idea of having an opinionated like framework for building essentially a company. Like Ruby on Rails lets you make these like really big apps. Um, and many companies like GitHub still use them, like GitHub and Shopify both use Ruby on Rails as their like core product. So it scales really well. And uh, like as there's been more and more tech companies and they've kind of fallen into like certain strata, there's, you know, the companies that have a database and a front end and a back end. And that's a huge class of companies. Like we, we have customers that match that, that do like animal feed and, you know, like uh, bio robotics and they're, but they're, they all essentially have the same shape of infrastructure. So I think that there's going to be more and more companies that sell the experience for specific niches of users. Um, so, I mean, like in, in our case, GitHub was made 15 years ago or so. And it, the world that GitHub landed into didn't really even have specific websites, like specific types of companies. There was just the general internet companies that made websites. But now, you know, there's a formula that, that takes, you know, make a website, make it interactive and sell it to this group of people. So whether they're genomics researchers or, you know, uh, infrastructure people or logistics people or people working at ports or construction, you know, uh, just make a platform for those users that uh, makes them work more efficiently. So uh, like layer CI sells into that niche of companies that all look roughly the same or all have the same sorts of problems, which is, you know, they have end users, they have a front end, back end and database. They wanna make an app that's interactive and they want to be able to uh, hire developers and just kind of throw them into the mix with uh, pre-prepared tools. So uh, the way like Ruby on Rails standardized uh, the back end, now technologies like React are standardizing the front end. And so if you hire a developer, they'll be able to kind of very quickly produce value if they worked at a similar company in the past. And so I think like the future of developer tools and of tech companies in general will be these very opinionated um, like developer tools that supercharge the developers working in that specific kind of company. So if you're, if you're making a website, you know, there are the web flows of the world now, if your company is just a landing page or if you're making a, you know, a front end only company, there's, there's companies like uh, Netlify and Vercel that do really well for just the front end. And if you're doing uh, open source stuff, there's GitHub, of course. So uh, I think as the, as the market grows, there'll be more and more developer tools specifically for niches because each of those niches will uh, support a billion dollar company. And, and going a little off topic here, when it comes to the, you know, looking at blockchain as a technology, right? And especially the underlying technology, you had kind of mentioned and alluded to just earlier that everything's kind of becoming centralized, right? And with blockchain, it can either be uh, either centralized or decentralized, right? In most cases, use cases you're currently seeing, you're seeing a lot of decentralization, but it can kind of be applied in really any industry, right? And how do you kind of see this bridge kind of happening with that in the future? I mean, I guess blockchain itself is really another class of companies. Like it's taking the kind of traditional ways of doing things like uh, banks and insurance and uh, moving money around and, and decentralizing it. But like, I, I think there will always be certain industries that are better centralized. Like uh, 
things like Slack, for example, are very convenient because they're centralized. And there's been decentralized versions of Slack for 20 years now. Um, you know, the IRCs and the, uh, I forget what it's called. But you can like, you know, have these decentralized chat clients where you run your own server and it connects to other ones. And uh, those have kind of been eaten by Slack, despite the fact that it's going from decentralized to centralized. Um, and I, I think finance will be similar where like, you know, finance currently is just so bad that it's easy to disrupt. Like <laughs> the experience with big banks trying to get loans for a, a tech company, for example, was really miserable and it still is. And so companies like Brex, which are centralized are maybe disrupting finance initially. And there's lots of things that will be uh, disrupted by blockchain companies, perhaps in the future. Um, but that's not to say that those blockchain companies won't then also be disrupted by something centralized the same way you know, IRC was uh, disrupted by Slack. So I don't know, it's, it's hard to say whether blockchain is, is here to stay or if it's a 50 year fad. Truly well said. And you know, Colin, to really wrap up our call with our last question for the day, I really wanted to kind of you know, focus around this aspect that, look, you're, you are very in tune with how things are happening, right? But technology is changing so rapidly every year, right? And what are some of the best techniques you recommend to young entrepreneurs out there or just entrepreneurs in general where they can accelerate their learning, stay in tune with everything, uh, not miss out? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess my, my broad universal advice is uh, learn the fundamentals of things. So like read the original Bitcoin paper and read how like SHA works and maybe the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. And like all of these, like don't, don't read about any particular, um, like any particular coin perhaps. It's, it's much more useful to know the concepts. So like the, the concept of a zero knowledge proof is very interesting. And it takes a long time to learn, of course, because it's a heavy concept. But if you understand the concept, then you understand the whole range of, you know, uh, crypto things that depend on zero knowledge proofs and how they're different from each other. But unless you know the baseline, then all you're doing is kind of chasing the, the three letter acronyms and uh, like trying to know marginally more than other people. But if you actually learn the fundamentals, then you'll know a lot more than other people and you'll be able to actually make billion dollar companies with these things. For example, uh, you know, non-fungible tokens. There are some YC companies from three or four years ago that had a pitch of non-fungible tokens being usable for things. And uh, like, those are the ones that are on the way to being billion dollar companies, not the ones that are trying to chase Dogecoin. <laughs> I, I learned a lot of statistics because I guess it turns out statistics is very useful for a lot of things in the modern world, um, from financial projections to uh, machine learning. I mean, machine learning is just a fancy word for statistics. <laughs> So like if you, if you learn the, the baseline things like Bayes' law and you learn how they work, then you, you see it all over the place and it gives you new perspectives on maybe new topics and it helps you pick them up much faster. So like if, uh, if a new company comes out with uh, some novel you know, way of doing things, then if you know the baseline, like if you know the fundamentals from 10 years ago that that company is building on, you have a much better understanding of what that company does. So like uh, I did a lot of computer vision with like the very simple convolutional neural networks that are like, you know, 10 years old now. But just by learning those fundamentals, I'm now able to at least understand the, uh, the value of like self-driving car companies and things. And I can ask pointed questions about um, like 
how are they different and how have they overcome these problems that are in the fundamentals? And I guess that's that's where a lot of the interesting learnings come is like given fundamentals that everyone knows, what have you learned on top of that? And then uh, that like, instead of having to learn an entire topic, you can learn just the difference between the fundamentals and the uh, like the papers or the, the articles like new point. The easiest way to learn something is to be curious about it and, or genuinely engaged with it. And then just like learning because you're, you're interested in it. It's, it's always much harder to force yourself to learn something than it is to do something that you think is fun. Um, but that, that leads really well into startups anyways, because if you're learning topics that you don't like, then the startup you build with them probably won't be something you like either. And so you'll inevitably give up. But if you uh, take topics you do like and you find a way to make a business around them, then like it'll be both faster to learn about those topics and it'll be uh, faster to, or it'll be like less likely that you give up because even if your company is hitting uh, stones along the way, my general advice is try to do things that you're already interested in or see why they're interesting and convince yourself that they're interesting before you bother learning them. And uh, I guess my other advice is if you're in university and you're learning things, then try to learn fundamentals instead of applied things. Like uh, it's always, you can always learn applied things the rest of your life, but university is really great for learning fundamentals because the, the, like those are just four years or whatever that you wouldn't otherwise be learning anything else. So if you can learn, you know, the fundamentals of many different topics with electives and they're topics that you actually uh, care about, then you can use that base to learn about, um, I guess, what you like as a person and more advanced topics on top of that in your own time. And Colin, for people who are interested in reaching out to you or catching a cup of coffee with you uh, post COVID, of course, uh, what would be the best point of contact? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm always happy to get emails. I try to reach inbox zero every day. And my email is just colin at layerci.com. Colin, it was a pleasure having you on Geeks of the Valley. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.